This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Esperanza Brizuela Garcia, and today I will be talking to Dr. Leslie Hatfield about her book, A Bold Profession, African Nurses in Rural Apartheid South Africa, published by a University of Wisconsin Press in 2021. Dr. Hatfield is Associate Professor of African History at Brigham Young University. Dr. Hatfield, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, I wonder if we could uh, start today's interview uh, by you telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, I was born and raised in Logan, Utah. It's a small town in the northern part of the state. And I went to Utah State University, which is situated in that town. And I had always been interested in Africa ever since I was little. But when I switched my major to history, I took some uh, African history courses and also a course on race and communication in the United States and South Africa. And with that course, I was introduced to a study abroad program through Brigham Young University that took students to South Africa where they lived with family, South African families and did individual research projects and internships. And I decided to do that program because it brought in all these interests of mine together, including the history of race relations. And I went and had a wonderful life-changing experience. I continued after my bachelor's in history at Utah State University to do a master's and then at Ohio University and then a PhD at Michigan State University, uh, both in African studies. And I did my first book on the Black Consciousness Movement in South Africa. And then that led me to this book. And, and how, um, you know, you have a, a brief description in your, uh, in your introduction about how it was by talking to some retired nurses. Was that in that same trip that, that you were mentioning or when you were doing research for your book that you encountered these nurses? Yes. Yeah, so I went to South Africa for the first time in the year 2000. So it's been over 20 years now and I'm still... Um, connected to those wonderful people there. And uh, what happened is when I I went back in um, 2002, it was the 25th anniversary of Steve Biko's death. I was staying with my host family and I asked them uh, if I could keep the newspaper, which had this special insert celebrating his 25th anniversary or the 25th anniversary of his death. And my host dad said, oh, we know lots of people who could talk to you about Steve Biko. And it turns out that my host mom, Pumla Boy, she's um, since passed away. She went to school with Steve Biko's wife, or widow, Nziki Biko or Nonzikelelo Biko, and they went to nursing school together. And so that gave me that connection that I needed. And when I was doing my dissertation research in the year 2008, um, at the end of that year, I knew, so I'd been doing research on one of the 
community programs of the movement, which was a clinic, the Zen and Pilo Clinic. And I knew that that clinic was an exception. And so I thought, I need to get a sense for what it was like to be a nurse in other places around here. And I knew that Mrs. Biko had worked as a nurse in some of the mission hospitals. And so I asked her if I could interview her about her nursing career. And she then said, well, yes, you should you should also meet my neighbor, Zochi Mkako, who worked in the township clinic for most of her career. And so we met together. We had a wonderful interview. I learned a lot. And at the end of that interview, they said, well, if you want to interview more nurses, we just formed this Retired Nurses Association. And I had been seeing some things in the archives about how they established clinics and hospitals, a lot of records. And I thought, I think that's my next project. And of course, it's evolved um, since then. At first, I thought I would do just a bunch of interviews, kind of like the book Women of Pokang, which mm-hmm. um, brings together a number of interviews of, of women and gives an introduction to certain chapters, but it's mostly the, the words of the women that you are hearing. But I found out as I did more research that there had been some of these interviews done or, or the, the experiences of nurses in the past captured, but really there was not a good analysis or synthesis of this history. And so I thought, well, this is what I'm going to have to do. <laughs> um, I actually found that that sort of um, methodological uh, approach of your book really interesting because it, it, it certainly it does not try to stop at, at the interviews. And, and you're very clear. That's something that I really appreciated reading the book, sort of how you are very clear about which parts of, of your analysis rely either more heavily or less heavily on the interviews and where are you working more with archives and, and the struggle that often we, we see with see you going through in the book and, and figuring out how they can complement each other. In other words, that sometimes those two kinds of sources, they're not necessarily obviously speaking to each other, but you have to figure out a way to read them in a way that, that allows you to uh, actually place these interviews into context. Can, can you tell us a little bit about um, that? You know, how is it that uh, you realized that this was going to be necessary? Yes, and, and thank you for that feedback. It's nice nice to hear how people are reading this book. Um, yes, when I first, and I think many people, uh, when they go into African history, they really are searching for those African voices. That's, that's the most important, and especially these women who had such uh, had done such amazing work. I wanted to bring their voices and their stories to the fore. But then I realized that we really do have to have that broader context to understand what they were working, the context they were working in, what they were facing. And as a historian, I go back to what John Gaddis writes in his book, The Landscapes of of History, that um, we really, it is our job to provide that broader view of history. And that's where we come in and we add that synthesis. So although I really wanted to foreground those voices of those nurses and that I wanted their stories and their life experiences to shape what the book was going to become and drive the narrative, uh, there, there is that necessary context that we need to understand. And especially in this particular region and time period with these apartheid homelands, understanding the intricacies uh, of that 
context um, becomes even more important. I think it's pretty easy for us to understand anywhere you are to understand nurses, who they are and what they're supposed to do and what they might be facing, but then the particularities of the time and place are important and that historical view bringing in, and that's the beauty, I think, of my what I love about my profession, the beauty of being a historian, you get to put all these pieces together and see that take shape as you do so. Um, also, you were doing this in, in what you also describe in, in your intro, intro, introduction as an, at a very particular moment in the historiography of South Africa, where this is this is an attempt to re- return to the study of the homelands and, uh, and try to, you know, sort of not necessarily appreciate them, but understand exactly what role they play in the lives of peoples and how people shape them too, which is kind of like what you're you're doing here in the case of nurses. Can you tell us a little bit of that historiographical landscape? You know, how is it that it's changing and in what ways you feel that this new attempt to look at uh, at the homelands uh, as as, as an object of study uh, is is uh, what's the potential for that? Uh, what what new views can we expect from from that particular turn? Yes, thank you for that question. It's been an interesting journey. When I first uh, worked on my first book, Liberation and Development, about the Black Consciousness Movement, you know, I was dealing with activists who worked against the homelands. These most of the world saw the apartheid homelands or Bantu stands, as other people call them, as this apartheid experiment that was pretty bad, uh, bad for the people as in uh, the economically, politically, socially. And um, this was something that pit Nelson Mandela against his own family members, these uh, disagreements over what the role of these, if they even should buy into this system. And so I think for a number of years, and historians have shown us this, how, how terrible this was, what a terrible project project this was. You had corrupt politicians. And so it was it was unthinkable in a way politically to even think about why what good could have come out of this. And so when I first uh, went to do these interviews, I thought I was going to have a lot more uh, from the nurses about how bad apartheid was and how bad the race relationships were uh, between the doctors and the nurses. And what I realized through, uh, there was hardly any of that in the interviews, and that was quite surprising to me. Uh, But then as I thought about it some more, and I make mention in the introduction that um, I've been in that area for a number of years, I keep returning to that area. I was living in King Williamstown, uh, and I've I've gone back there multiple times uh, to live there. Uh, And that's right near, near Bisho, which became the capital of the Siskai homeland. And so there are a lot of these memories that people have or things that people will say, well, you know, they, they understand, as one nurse um, told us in a, in a meeting, we understand that this was a bad thing because it was part of apartheid. And yet there were other things that they are very proud of. You look at Bisho, the city that has these almost skyscrapers and uh, the, the development that people turn to to show that your society is, is progressing with these roads. And um, there's one road that they built um, to link Bisho to another major road so they could get around King Williamstown because that King Williamstown is still a white area. So people will talk about how 
Sebe, who was the, the, the president of the Siskai uh, for a while, how he built that road, or they would talk about how merit, even though there was corruption, um, they would talk about how, oh, in the homeland time period, people were judged on their merits. They were brought into the government because of what they knew and the skills they had, not because of their political loyalties. That's these some of these things are questioned are questionable, these claims that people would make. But this um, tie back to that time and as people were seeing what was happening in the present time in South Africa and um, as Jacob Lamini talks about in his book, Native Nostalgia, what is this? What does it tell us about this nostalgia for the past? Why are people saying these things? And so we really do need to dive into that history for those reasons. But then there are also some pretty practical reasons why we need to understand the history of these sorts of services and the major governmental and bureaucratic changes that happened because of the the homeland, apartheid homelands, these were pretty significant in the way that services were brought to people, in the way that people did have professional experiences and, and were employed. And then that shift to full democracy in the 1990s, we have to go back and, and see all of that within this long history and how it's tied to understand what's happening today in these places. Um, oh, absolutely. And in a way, I found uh, it, it was almost, um, it, it was really touching, but also incredibly uh, sort of mundane to some, in some ways to, to, to sort of read the very momentous changes that this these women um, experienced throughout their one lifetime, basically. Um, and and to do so basically almost not noticing that those momentous changes are happening uh, and the amount of change that they themselves affected uh, throughout their lifetimes again most of the time not really realizing and, and then later on sort of reflecting upon that so in, in some ways it is, is it is a really interesting um, like I said it's a, it's a really interesting piece of history but also a really interesting piece of life history isn't it uh, that that you managed to accomplish here. Um, in terms of, of the historiographical uh, part of it, uh, you, you also mentioned this is not obviously the first study on nurses or even on, on, on African nurses. Um, and you in particular feel like uh, this study is, is contributing um you know, on the one hand, this this part of the life history and, and the nurses being able to speak for themselves. Uh, but there's also the, the aspect of, of the, the, the fact that these were nurses working in rural areas, which is apparently one of the big gaps that, that existed in the historiography. How do you feel this study sort of starting to present or what is the picture that starts to come out between your work and those the, the work of others that are that have also studied the evolution of nursing in South Africa? Well, what, what you say about, um, I'll just quickly go back to what you were commenting about the life histories. It's so true that we lived through these things, these changes, and they lived through a time with a lot of changes. And we don't, we, it's hard for us to see the bigger picture when we're right in it. Uh, and that's also why, you know, looking back in history, that's why it's so valuable. Um, and it's just because we're living in it. There's nothing else we could really do. 
Um, and I think that um, part of that, um, adding this, um, these lived experiences of these nurses to the sort of canon that's uh, being written about Black nurses and the nursing profession broadly in South Africa, it really gives us um, more of a personal sense of, of the, what these women faced. Um, I think there have been some works that, um, like I said in the uh, introduction and then uh, as we were talking to, there have been some nurses who have written down their stories. So we do get individual uh, stories and life histories in a way, which is very valuable, but to bring them all together from a particular area and to get um, this particular experience in these rural clinics where these nurses faced things very differently. They were one of few or the only nurse uh, at these clinics. And so it was much more about being within the community uh, with uh, this negotiations that they would do within the communities with their patients, sometimes with other medical practitioners um, or um, health practitioners in the area. And also, I think one of the pieces that um, is probably the more unique contribution that I make with my book is to talk about how their careers intersected with their family lives. Because I, I was, that was another thing that surprised me as I was researching these other works that very few, and I just, I still can hardly believe it, very few talked about what these women did and how their careers influenced child rearing, their marriages, their relationships with their own parents or their in-laws. And I hope that bringing this out will help us um, see these nurses in their entirety and really contribute to both nursing history as well as women's history. Yeah, absolutely. It, 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 at that point, it really became a very interesting window into just like the social changes of, of women's lives uh, in, in that era uh, or throughought that period. So, um, yeah, I t- totally agree. That was probably one of the most interesting um, parts of the book. Um, so just to start setting up this, this scene uh, a little bit for our listeners, um, you start your book um, quite literally setting up the scene, just giving us a sense of what was the uh, the situation uh, and the evolution of sort of health, um, the delivery of health care services and the beliefs and practices in, 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 um, in terms of med- medical attention uh, in, in this area uh, from roughly British colonialism all the way through the 1950s. Um, what were the points or areas uh, that you were trying to highlight uh, by starting your book, setting this uh, groundwork? Yes, thank you for that question. I found this chapter to be quite interesting. um, And at the same time, I wanted it to pick up the pace, right? Because we want to get to those voices of the nurses. But (laughs) one of the things that um, it, it was this region, the Siska region of South Africa, has a long medical history with nursing. The first nurses were African nurses were trained in this region. And so I wanted to get back to that history, but it also gave me a chance to explain Kosa medical practices and beliefs. And I think that was pretty important. That's a 
theme that runs through the book is how the nurses, how biomedicine, Western biomedicine interacted with the Kosa healing systems and or medical systems, and not just the two systems, but those practitioners um, and how nurses would negotiate with their patients as well. And so to bring in, um, in that chapter, I wanted to talk about the foundation of, or, or what we can guess is the foundation. Of course, Kosa medical systems like other Nguni medical beliefs and practices are constantly changing. There's not, um, there, there's a lot of evolution according to what's effective. And so it's hard to pinpoint, oh, this is where it starts, but we can go back and, and lay that foundation to understanding the basis and, and the differences between these two systems that end up meeting in this, in this region amongst these critical uh, actors. And then I wanted to bring that, bridge that gap um, and show how the foundations of a certain, some pretty important things that would come into play with the work of these nurses, especially in the rural clinics. So the district nurses, um, how they, how um, nursing amongst uh, African women became an important profession, how they became accepted in the profession, how it grew. Um, so there are some pretty interesting things there. And that's where a lot of my archival work came into play as well, um, looking at the hospital uh, records, which was interesting to, to see how these hospital boards uh, were engaging with these women. But also then how the, again, the rural clinics were fitting in with these hospital systems and how they began and how those things changed. Um, and then of course, I stopped it in the 1950s um, because we, we see the change with the apartheid government coming in in 1948. So there were some of those foundational things that needed to be there in that mm -hmm. first chapter. And then uh, with that, uh, you know, with that, important transition uh, into apartheid, you move into your second chapter to talk about the restructuring of uh, the creation of the homelands, basically, and then um, setting up that setting up that stage, then you can explain more or less uh, then the development of healthcare systems, in, in, in particular in the Siske. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, I think it was really interesting to, I mean, this is not something that I had thought about, um, but I think a lot of people would be surprised to to realize that uh, that the homelands were that there was such a great investment in in the creation of, of these healthcare systems uh, that you know were definitely underfunded, definitely under resourced, uh, but that there was uh, a lot of human capital and a lot of human interest interest on in making them effective. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about how that restructuring uh, came to be and, you know, what were the outcomes of it? Right. Yes, that, that uh, this time period is really dynamic in the way that we see politics shaping the healthcare system, which I think many of us are interested in at this time. But yeah, it goes from this um, cumbersome system of four separate but overlapping lines of authority, as I write in, the, in that chapter, where you have these leftover st structures from the past that the chapter, the first chapter covers. And you've got some missionary hospitals and clinics, and they're totally separate from the public ones, and then different layers of government. 
And so when the apartheid government comes in and says, okay, we're going to make this area its own independent nation, it goes through these different changes um, and it ends up that they consolidate all of this into one system. And this is kind of painful, especially for the missionaries. I think the mission hospitals kind of felt like they got kicked out. And yet they, the funding and everything involved in this, it's such a, it's, it's a bit of a mess, I think. And it was kind of hard for me to figure out the best way to lay this out without oversimplifying it, but showing how there's kind of a back and forth. Some mission hospitals said, okay, well, the, the government's going to take over the clinics, so then we'll just focus on what we're doing here. And then eventually they, get, they take back over the clinics when the government takes them all over. And so this is the paradox, really, of these apartheid homelands, is that they were trying to make them so that they would get basically people in black people in South Africa out of the South African system. They wouldn't have representation. They would just be able to use these people for their labor. And yet at the same time, to make this work, they had to make some sort of uh, success in these areas. And so they were, and they were really, it was quite expensive. You ended up with nine or 10 of these, even if they didn't all gain independence, you had to fund them. And so they, as they make these new places and, and the people, the polit- local politicians that get involved, they also see, we want to do this for our people because we have been lacking healthcare. We have been lacking these other services. Um, and so we know that they want them, whether it's out of a genuine desire to help their people or out of a desire to gain power. I'm sure that there was a mixture of all of that, even within one politician. But all of these things um, that comes together where the apartheid government is putting so many resources to support this so-called independence. And I say so-called because no other country in the world really accepted or recognized these homelands as independent nations. And also they're not independent financially because they're, the apartheid government has to support them. Um, but when they did give that a- autonomy at a certain level, then the people, including these nurses, and especially I would say these nurses who are working in these clinics because they had a lot of autonomy to make these things happen, um, that's when they could really shape what's happening there and, and pay more close attention to these communities, whether out of political expediency I mean, more so for the nurses, it was because they wanted to to um, help the people. Um, but whether or not the government was supporting them because of or out of political expediency or out of you know helping the people, but all of that. So on the outside, you get people recognizing the corruption, the problems of having these homelands, and yet there are some good things happening when you consolidate and when you focus the healthcare system on reaching people in in especially in these rural areas this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory shopify pos has everything you need to sell in person go to shopify.com system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, that, that was definitely, like you said, the, the big paradox of the period. And, and I think it's, the, it's, it's something that you, you um, did a fantastic job in that chapter to try to navigate all these different systems and, and, um, and how they were being sort of merged and unmerged at a certain moments. Um, so now we can definitely move into uh, the meaty chapters, you know, now that we have all the background uh, laid down for us. Um, so you start with your chap- with your third chapter talking about the, 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 the very specific work of nursing, you know, the, the work that these nurses did at clinics. Um, I think one of the interesting and, and most um, surprising things in here is just the diversity of the settings in which, I mean, they're, they're all many working in, in rural settings, but even within rural settings, there were all these different possibilities and, right. and, and the challenge that that presented for these women. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the work, basically the work that they did, how they remembered it and uh, um yeah, and, and how they managed to sort of negotiate all this um, uh, all this diversity of, of, of social, geographical, and even just in terms of the, the resources that they had in each of these uh, difficult settings. Right, and, and you're right. That political background really helps us understand why one nurse would say, yes, this clinic was well equipped and we had wonderful a wonderful nurse's home and another nurse might say that no it was terrible out there you know so because some places were favored a little bit more over others um, this really was these these chapters where I get into um, the interviews were really my favorite and um, this remembering clinic work chapter I really just wanted to, this is where I really wanted to bring in these stories from, from the nurses. And as I say there in the chapter is that I wanted to see both the mundane aspects, the daily grind versus the really extraordinary experiences that they had, because I think those things are what stand out in our minds and also define the work and, and the way that they remembered also shapes how they feel about the, their own profession, their lives, and um, the nursing profession today. So that's all wrapped up. But yes, we um, there were, to get into the conditions of service, right, uh, their contracts, what they were expected to do, a lot of these women, one of the things that stood out to me was that they really dedicated their lives to these communities because they had to be stationed at those clinics for basically all but two weekends out of the month. Now, some women, and here's the diversity, right? You get some women who uh, they lived away from their families this whole time. So they would only see their children and their spouses and other family members two weekends out of of a whole month, which is quite, even if you weren't uh, at the clinic the whole time, uh, some nurses lived um, in the back rooms of the clinic. So that's where they had to live or in the nurses' quarters right on the clinic grounds. Um and so they were there all the time. They had to be on call. And that was something that was really taxing for a lot of nurses. Some nurses, however, also were stationed in the villages where their family was, either their natal family or their uh, husband's family. And so that actually allowed them to be really integrated into the community more than others. But I could tell from the interviews that 
these women, even if they were separated from their families, they were really dedicated to those communities where they lived. And you can see why, um, you know, some people, some communities would just really love those nurses who stayed there for years um, because of all the services they rendered. And that's where the other diversity comes in. Is, and that is, you know, there were some cases they every day of the week had its own speciality. Maybe they'd have the TB clinic on Tuesdays. Maybe they'd have the well baby clinic on Wednesdays. They would see hypertension uh, patients on Fridays. You know, they would have their schedule. So they would have those cases that they would often see. But you never knew what was going to come up living in a community when somebody was going to go and labor or when there might be an accident. Uh, and so even though um, it could be they dealt with a lot of routine procedures and a lot of cases that were, you know, what they would call the normal cases, there, there was a lot of variation as well. And so there were some women who would say that being the only person there to carry this load or one of two or three nurses, that made this work difficult. At the same time, it maybe wasn't as hectic as if you were in the Bargwanath Hospital, um, it was, as it was called then, or Livingston Hospital, you know, these big urban hospitals. Um, and, and they were able to see a variety of cases. So one nurse... Um, said, you know, I loved being out in the clinics because I could, I could master all of these different cases to work with. It was, it was a way that they could build up their skills. Yeah. I mean, that, that was actually really interesting to read about, um, because they, they, the, the chapter obviously talks a lot about the, the, the experience, the experience that they gained through this. Um, it, it doesn't seem that the, I mean, it seems that they, they, there were opportunities for training, obviously, for, you know, training in specific uh, illnesses or uh, in specific types right. of, uh, of, of, but at the same time, it just doesn't seem like they, most of the learning basically happened in the job, it, it sounds like. Um, and, and that was, uh, I mean, that must have been an enormous challenge for, a, especially for a young nurse who all of a sudden is finding themselves. Uh, did you find... Uh, you know, what were the requirements? You know, I mean, could, could you find yourself in a rural hospital all by yourself as someone who's just finished training? Or did you have to spend so many hours or time at somewhere else before you could? Uh, what was, do people want it to be in these rural uh, clinics or did they don't want to be in this room? I mean, uh, yes. what was your sense of that? Good questions. Of course, I interviewed a lot of women who were in the rural clinics. And so, uh, many of them stayed there. They liked it. Uh, but I also asked them, you know, what would make a nurse quit, right? Because that's an important question. If, if I'm interviewing all those who stayed, I, I also need to know why people wouldn't stay. Um, the training was critical. And a lot of them, there was, when I was interviewing uh, Zochim Gako, who had, uh, was one of the first people I talked to this about, um, and then her friend, um and her name escapes me right now, um, at which I, I'm going to find it. But when they said that um, if you were to go out there, it's, oh, Mrs. Nkonki, Tembisa E. Nkonki. This is at the beginning of chapter three. Mm -hmm. um, and they said, you can't, you couldn't just throw someone out there in the clinic right away after training, fresh from training. She had to be there either with somebody who has had experience. And some of the nurses did say, 
No, I got my training from working with this older nurse out here. She taught me how to do it. So you might be, you know, side side by side with someone who's more experienced. Um, but also some of these nurses were really well trained. And I think that's the thing that also drew me to this history is when I was hearing a number of them saying, well, I never had a death in childbirth. And I thought, well, that's pretty incredible. If you didn't have electricity and you didn't have linens for your women in labor um, and they're coming at night and you're far from the hospital and you, the ambulance might take a half an hour to get there. How did this happen? You know, and it's because a lot of them also had, in fact, you couldn't be fully, you had to be fully qualified. So you'd have that um, general nurses training. So you'd be a registered nurse and then have midwifery training to be out there. Now there were probably a few nurses who uh, I did interview some who were nursing assistants, but they worked mostly in hospitals. Those out in the clinics really needed that further training, um, that midwifery training to um, adhere to those maternity cases. Um, and to what, I mean, you, you, you go into a little bit of that or the interviews went into some of this, although like you said, surprisingly not as much as you would have expected, how much of that level of training and that level of effort uh, was reflected in their salaries? Great question. So this is one where, you uh, you know, these nurses were actually paid quite well compared to other people, but in the broader context, they were not paid really what they were worth if you compared to them to the white nurses and of course, if you're stationed out uh, in, in a place for most of the month, right, and you're expected to be on call, they didn't, you know, give that overpay. Mm-hmm. Um, but compared to most of the population, they they were probably they would put their nursing salary would put them in the middle class pretty solidly, and even in the upper middle class that where they could afford housing and education for their children. Um, but yes, at the same time, they worked very hard. Uh, for this pay, uh, for these salaries. And those that, um, there was one woman I mentioned in the book who worked her whole career at Frere Hospital in East London. So it was in an urban hospital. And there were other women who said, yes, you ought to interview her. And then I I stopped by and I talked to her. They introduced me to her. And then she said, well, give, let me have time to think about it and then call me and when I called her back, she said, it's just too painful for me to talk about this because all of that time that she'd been working at Frere Hospital, she was not getting the, the pay that she deserved, the equal pay uh, to that of the white nurses. And that was just so painful for her. She didn't want to dwell on it and, and, um, and revisit it in an interview. So that's, again, another bit of a paradox, the complexities of this history where uh, you have nurses who were paid quite well for their work, but yet there were, when you put them in comparison with other people of their racial category in, in South Africa at that time, and yet when you look at how much uh, they were sacrificing and how committed they were and, and the work that they were doing um, in comparison to white nurses, then they were not being compensated enough. Yes. Um, yeah. And it is, it's interesting that in the same sort of vein of so much of what your book does, it's, it's just interesting to see them make sense of that experience in, in this very different ways. Uh, um, 
some of them, you know, focusing on maybe that or some of them not even thinking about that, but really taking enormous amount of pride on the things that they had achieved. Um, Yes, and I'll just quickly um, say right here that you're right, that some of them, they just felt that it was nursing was a calling. And this probably had a lot to do with their training, um, which a lot of them had in mission hospitals or those who had been trained in mission hospitals were training them. So this this sense of this is a, a mission in life. Um, but at the same time, the way that um, it, nowadays it seems it's difficult for people to get nurses to work in these rural clinics, and even back then too, because they have to live away from their family, because it's uh, far away from the good schools, or they have to travel far, and and so to get those skilled women there, we really do. I say we. I'm just thinking about society in general or societies in general, they really need to compensate the people and pay them for that kind of sacrifice and work. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, the, the following chapter, then you delve into a, a, a something that, uh, to some extent, that they were not trade for, but um, they, they still managed to negotiate really well, uh, which is basically negotiating with the existing uh practices, uh, medical practices that, that uh, existed among people of, of their culture. Uh, COSA, engaging COSA beliefs and practices is what you entitled this chapter. And, and again, you know, you have set up that, uh, that uh, groundwork in, in the first chapter. Um, in, in not surprisingly, you sort of they, these nurses remember how, you know, they, they understood very early on that they were not going to get much out of just uh, haranguing people about uh, dropping their beliefs and, right. and, and changing their mind, you know, and that it, it just shows very, you know, it just so, shows a thoughtfulness and, um, and, and, and a pragmatic approach uh, to their work uh, that I think is, is incredibly um, prescient in, in some ways of, of the work that they of the things that they were needed were going to have to do, and, and for this one, I think you also point out that there was no, even though there were certain attitudes uh, that might have been sort of advised that they might have been given um, at the time of their training, that a lot of this it, it just came from them from their own understanding of the communities that they were working in. Right. Right. You know, it's interesting. I, I recently was flipping through the book and I came across the point where I talked about one. I would ask these nurses about close beliefs and practices about health and healing. And one said, well, of course, you know, I there was someone I went to high school with and and he was there selling medicines in the market the other day. You know, so they were there were some people who did grow up in households that really wanted to separate themselves from that uh, lifestyle and those beliefs and practices. But there were others that, I mean, they were in the communities and so they understood what these meant. So when they opened up the little locker in the hospital that the patient had and they saw herbs or other um, medicines there, they recognized exactly what that was. And that gave them the background to successfully negotiate with people it, um, when they realized uh, either in, intuitively or through experience that, no, we can't just um, cut these people off and tell them not to do this because it's not going to work. Um, we need to work with them. And so that's where is that, that cultural brokerage comes in 
And I, I found that a really fascinating aspect of their experience as well. It is also a, a kind of like a, they're, they, in some ways, they developed their own um, concept of uh, what delivering healthcare was. Uh, I mean, when, when you compare this attitude to sort of like the attitudes of nineteenth and the 19th century where, where you describe like, well, the, 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 whole, the sole function of the delivery of healthcare was to basically convince people of uh, converting to Christianity or to attract people to the mission, you know, to, it, it was uh, this, the wholesale um, sort of imposition of, of a set of beliefs. Well, uh, you know, so maybe at the expense of actually making people feel better. Uh, well, in this case, th- these nurses actually decide, no, I mean, what's important here, uh, it's to make people, people feel better, uh, mm-hmm. not necessarily to change their minds. And, and, and I think that in and of itself sort of it ch- marks like a really interesting shift in, in, in a conception of what a healthcare system is supposed to do. That's a really good point. And it, it reminds me of, the one nurse who said, you know, it doesn't matter what healed them as long as they get better, whether it's the pills that they took or the medicine from the, you know, it's, it doesn't to me, you know, to the, she was saying this as, the, as a nurse, it doesn't matter to me what happened as long as they get better. And I think you're right. That's a very important, that's the way it should be. I think we all would agree <laughs> that healthcare should be that focused on, on the people getting better. Um, it was a little surprising to me again at the beginning of this research um, how open they were to that. Um, and there, of course, were some who are still saying, well, yeah, we had to make sure that they didn't believe those things. But most of them, the majority knew that, no, you just have to work with them and motivate them. That was a, a term that they used a lot, motivate the patient to, to do both. And of course, there were times that, the, that they clashed. And so I focus on these three different um, illnesses where nurses clashed with COSA practitioners or biomedicine and, and COSA medicine clashed around TB, um, uh, gastroenteritis, and um, psychiatric cases. And so then they had to negotiate there. How do you get the people to instead of give an enema when there's diarrhea, you um, help them do something different. And, and so there was there were these, this is where the nurses were carefully consulting with their patients, even going to see the ama so that they could talk with them about, okay, when, when this happens, one analogy that a nurse shared with me was, if you're watering a garden, you don't, uh, you don't put don't need to bring more water if you have the water that's that's not going to help um or it just adds more um so what we need to do is is um change what we're how we understand um the what's happening inside the bodies um and what the causes are um and and then we can agree on how to uh treat them and, and and heal these people yeah, and in, in that same chapter, you, you also talk about uh, another sort of set of clashes uh, just in terms of like gender relations, you know, and, and this is a really interesting point because 
um, you know, I mean, it's not something that it's uh, old in some ways. You know, there's there's uh, nursing in in some ways is a very gendered profession, uh, for better and for worse. Uh, and and uh, these clashes with uh, nurses trying to treat uh, male patients, particularly older male patients, uh, they must have been just on the par with clashes on trying to decide what to do with a TB patient. Um, can you tell us how they they, they certainly remember those uh, those experiences as being very problematic? And again, their own knowledge of of like gender. Uh, relations among uh, their people probably helped them, but um, uh, but it would have been very difficult to to address that. Yes, yes, for sure. And it reminds me of how these these women had to learn how to be very delicate with their male patients, draw on male nurses if they were there, or say, okay, the doctor's going to come, and doctors, of course, were mostly male at that point. And so they say, okay, well, let's make sure the doctor sees you because. Again, they were focused on healing these people, giving them opportunities um, to get better, to get well. And so, there, yeah, there was a lot, there was a lot of that negotiation. Sometimes um, uh, the other interesting thing with this aspect of the, of the gendered nature of nursing and, and the patients was, you know, among the Amakosa, the, the, they still have the initiation into manhood, which includes circumcision, which can be uh, can go wrong at times, um, as they uh, still happens today. And so, uh, women were not allowed uh, to go visit these initiates. This was a male space, and even uh, mothers. I, there are some stories about mothers who would go and kind of sneak in or or get their son out of this initiation school and take them to the clinic to be treated. And so there were those, that was, that's more of an extreme example, but they encountered these aspects of the gendered nature of care and healing uh, throughout their careers. And again, that, those negotiating powers uh, were pretty, I think they, they honed them pretty well in their nursing professions. And that's going to, I, I don't know if this is the right time to do this transition, but it, it to me transitions into the other aspect, and that is uh, when I was, I had presented what I was had written to a lot of nurses because I wanted to get their feedback. And one of them, when we were talking about their family life um, at home, how their career intersected with how they ran their families, one of them said because they had learned to negotiate and deal with these issues at work, they put up with a lot at home. So maybe they put up with more abuse from their husbands or in-laws than they would have normally because they could manage those social aspects of of their profession. Well, that is a perfect way of, of transitioning <laughs> into your last chapter. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think they it's certainly... I mean, it is kind of surprising that we haven't asked ourselves this question more, uh, but given the, the working conditions, uh, it is uh, remarkable. I mean, I think very few women today would would, uh, would be able to sustain uh, uh, family life uh, under the working conditions that these women had to undergo, and yet they did so. 
uh, under. And like you said, there, there were like, like a range of, of issues and, and problems mm-hmm. and they all had to be dealt in, in different ways. Um, and, and I guess what I would think, what I would like you to reflect upon a, a little bit here is um, j- just the setup, you know, I mean, how, how, how do these women in this, at this moment when they're trying to, um, you know, we, we think you mentioned at one point in the book, there's teachers and nurses are the main two professions where women can sort of make a career. Um, is to what extent um, uh, are women changing? Basically, are these uh, these are in some ways these are histories of people who are changing the way in which uh, families operate uh, during during this period. And obviously, as being sort of the trailblazers, they had to deal with a lot of the the, the pushback. Um, but do they? Do you feel on the one hand that they? Um, they felt that they made change and do you get a sense that they managed to affect some change in sort of social expectations, etc.? Yes, that's a great question. And here I'm going to be sort of venturing out into places that I don't know all the data for, mm-hmm. but I think it's pretty clear in South Africa today that most women have jobs, they're employed um, to earn wages outside of the home. And this can range from the profession, more professional positions, uh, educated uh, positions, and to the domestic worker. And so you have those, uh, and, and it would be really interesting, I think, to compare, because at this point, I'm looking at the 1950s through the 1980s, of course, there were many women working as domestic servants, and it would be really interesting to compare their experiences with these nurses, because at the same time, they were probably had just as demanding jobs, um, and probably the domestic servants more so. Uh, and yet, um, there were these probably different expectations and experiences because of the education and, and professional differences. Uh, between them. And so that would be really interesting. I, I do think that, um, that that we've seen, even though there are, I mean, just within South Africa recently, the, there was the proposal to uh, allow uh, women to have more than one husband. Um, if we're talking about polygamy, uh, let's not just, if and we want to have gender equality. And that raised a lot of of opposition from men in South Africa. And I think this is really challenging some of these ideas. So there's, and this is one of the arguments that I make in the chapter too, is that we see these things morphing over time, but not always going towards one direction all the time and different changes happening at different levels for different people. Um, It's just kind of a messy, complicated history. But I do believe that the growth of these professional women in, in, as teachers and nurses, and, and you see the, the numbers just really shoot up in the 1950s and 1960s of women who are entering these professions. And so you're getting people from different socioeconomic classes um, in these professions. And I think that, did, that has normalized um, professional women um, having you know families, not that they wouldn't. I think the norm was that every woman would have children, um, right? But it's um, having a little bit more expectation that it's more of the norm 
that women would have these careers and also raise children at the same time. I, is that what you're getting at? Is that yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it is. Um, like I said, I think that's one of the most interesting things about reading a book like this, that on the one hand, you have this, the, this women making sense of their experience in, in sort of relatively modest ways. Uh, but when you look at it from, you know, in, in perspective, it's just like, oh my God, they were like quite literally changing the world. Um, and it's, and it's also interesting going back to your earlier point about seeing their experiences in conjunction with what the archive shows us. When I went to the newspapers, uh, that in Bozabansundu, especially the local newspaper there, it really showed me, oh, people were debating these things. In the 60s and 70s, women's liberation ideas were being debated in South Africa at the same time that these women were going through this and living it. And so they really were pioneers in that sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, you end your chapter kind of trying to reflect precisely on the sort of like the end of the uh, of the Siske homeland and the sort of like the legacy of what what is it that we can learn and what what is it that we should learn from the experiences of these women and i wonder if you can just um give us a little taste of of what uh, your concluding reflections were yes so you know one of the things that i like to do with history I, i don't think that we should always use history in service of the present because then we can we can misuse the past or distort it, but I think it's really important, and, and I mentioned this earlier too, to, to look at what lessons we can learn uh, from the past for this. And uh, going through and, and looking at these women's lives and as they reflected, um, I think that I came to a few conclusions um, that, I mean, we see how important, uh, how that if we as a society decide that we are going to organize these resources, you really can take healthcare to people um, in their places where they are in their communities. And that there have been these experiments in the past that show us what is successful about that and what it takes um, to do that. Um, And again, it takes funding. And so we talked about this before. We've got this paradox, this strange situation where they're actually, they were getting funded, but the funding was uh, um, not stable or it wasn't going to uh, sustain itself. So that those are questions that you have to uh, face. Um, Also, how do you get those skilled practitioners uh, in those positions? It does take some remuneration of those people and and making sure that they are compensated um, in appropriate ways to, um, and, and they, at the same time, they need that commitment. Commitment and dedication to communities can't feed them or um, get their own children to school but, um, or, or educated. But, of course, you're, you do want um, healthcare workers who are dedicated to the community but also well compensated for, for that work um, and of, of course, I mean, we saw, I think one of the things that comes out of this so strongly is that these women were highly skilled and um, analytical, and they had to make these difficult decisions in, in a very, almost, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? 
um, they had to make the, these decisions in one moment mm -hmm. in these emergency cases and these maternity cases. And so uh, you want to have those people there. And so you have to find incentives to get those people there. Um, yeah. And uh, I think those are the main things that I would like to, to share as far as that goes. Um, I think the last thing though, well, let me make a couple more comments about um, just quickly. There is a, a space for engagement with different medical systems. Mm -hmm. And I think they also give us an example of how to do that and how to work together, which I think we can still do better on in, in many places. And then finally, uh, um, I think this is more on the personal level, right? But just showing that, and the, these nurses shared their personal stories of their difficulties in their family life, uh, hoping that others would learn from them too. So I do hope that this history can help women, professional women nurses today um, learn how they might uh, ne negotiate and navigate these issues better. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think um, I think if I learned something uh, from this was definitely that in the face of tremendous challenges and problems and corruption and lack of funding, the enormous difference uh, that uh, basically a good nurse can make, you know, I mean, I think that's yeah. the most important sort of lesson from this. Uh, um, that, of course, and, and I think it, it really sets uh, one up to reflect on this. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about this and the, the sort of the concept of service, this notion mm -hmm. that if, if you are providing a service and that is uh, basically sort of like the, the ethos that is driving you, then somehow you should be okay with uh, settling for less compensation or less facilities. Uh, there has to be a sacrifice. And I think that's a problematic uh, position. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like yes. uh, to just expect that just because one feels that it, there, there needs to be a service or that one is providing a service, then that, that the sacrifice is, is sort of like assumed or accepted. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, these are the people we should be paying the most, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most valuable. And yet the issue is that resources are often the, the big problem. Yeah. Well. But um, I think I think what your work demonstrates is that they are the most valuable resource, you know, that they mm -hmm. definitely are the most valuable resource and that they don't need to necessarily get an enormous salary. They need to get a good salary, but that there are other ways in which their life can be improved that don't necessarily come with a salary. Uh, in other words, society as a whole can figure out ways of, of making their lives easier. Uh, by just changing a few a few attitudes, um, where um, so now that you've published this book, uh, I'm sure you're relieved that it's finally out. Yes. Um, <laughs> what are you working on these days? Yeah, so now I'm working on something that's so different, which is exciting. Um, I'm actually working on a book on the history of porters and guides who work on Mount Kilimanjaro. Oh, wow. Um, so different country, <laughs> similar ideas or similar, similar questions about labor in a way, uh, although I would not consider myself a labor historian. But I, um, as part of a study abroad program through BYU, I got invited to go. I, I learned Swahili when I was in grad school, and I invited to go on this uh study abroad program and ended up 
through again the projects morphing and changing that there I found there was a lot of history here um, about the those who worked on the mountain and I guess it kind of goes along with my I, with these nurses it's kind of these these hidden figures in history these people that are play such a crucial role in these systems and yet hardly get any attention and so I hope to bring out their stories well that sounds fantastic I have to admit uh... Yeah, you, you, when one teaches, one constantly teaches about these these porters and these guides as, as being basically crucial for uh, throughout a very long period in, in East African history. And you're right; I have I don't think I've ever read anything about them. So I definitely look forward to your uh, your next project being published. Well, uh, thank you so much uh, for your time. I think I've taken enough of it already, and uh, I do hope to have you. Uh, in the not-so-distant future to discuss your next project. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you.